yeah, this idea that you have the right to not feel uncomfortable, the right not to feel challenged, the right not to be around people you don't want to be around. It's a very privileged position and it's not realistic. That's not how the real world is. Again, especially for people who are not extremely privileged. You don't have that choice if you're poor or working class. You don't have any control over who you're around or who you engage with. You would never expect to be able to not feel uncomfortable. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Before we begin today's episode, I have a couple of exciting announcements I don't want you to miss out on. Number one, the film I am proud to be a part of, Affirmation Generation, is now available. This film does an incredible job of exposing the gender crisis, and we want it to reach therapists, doctors, parents, teachers, politicians, and anyone in a position to care. You can stream our early access edition of this film online anytime, as well as watch the trailer, learn more, or donate to the film at affirmationgenerationmovie.com. Number two, I've started a new private online community for listeners of this podcast. You can find it at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. This new offering fulfills several needs. Over the past year, my reach has grown exponentially, and while it delights me to know that my podcast is now in the top 2.5% globally, the matching rise in the amount of emails and DMs I receive has been overwhelming. It's simply too much for one person to handle, and while I care about my listeners, staring at a screen typing words at them for free feeds neither my stomach nor my soul. I had to create some kind of filter to make my engagement feel sustainable and nourishing to me. And fortunately, this is exactly what Locals was designed to do for independent content creators like myself. When you join my Locals community as a supporting member for $8 a month, you get to submit questions that I will answer in members-only Q&A live streams. I'm also considering offering behind-the-scenes early access to new podcasts as they're being recorded. Plus, of course, you get to meet light-minded people who share your interests in an online environment that's free of ads, bullies, and trolls. With Locals, you also get to choose how much you reveal about yourself on your profile so you can be undercover or out in the open. And you get to select whether your posts in my community are visible to anyone who drops by or only to other committed members. If you'd like to support me at a higher level, you can become a premium member for $24 a month, which allows you to privately message me, and I will prioritize responding to premium members' direct messages. I think this is a great solution that is designed to meet everyone's needs. Although we are just getting started and this community is currently small and new, we've already got some great people on board, including thoughtful therapists, concerned parents, and free-thinking, politically homeless people. Please come along and check out my growing community at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. You can get your first month free with promo code GRANDFATHER. Make the most of your trial membership by asking a question in the latest Q&A thread, and I will provide a live-streamed answer you can join me for or watch later. What have you got to lose? All right, now on to today's episode. 
Today, my guest is Megan Murphy, writer and host of the Same Drugs podcast, where she recently had me on as a guest. So this is our second time talking. I'm so excited to have a chance to catch up with Megan today and explore our thoughts together on culture, values, and sexual ethics in the 21st century. Megan, welcome. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to talking with you again. I really enjoyed our last conversation. Likewise. So I want to start off by asking you something that I've been wondering for a while now. Why the same drugs? Where did you get this name for your podcast and what does it mean? Well, there's several reasons that I chose the same drugs. But one of the reasons is that I was a big Chance the Rapper fan and there's a song called The Same Drugs. And it's about like growing out of a relationship. So it's like, we don't do the same drugs anymore. Um, And we've sort of grown in different directions. And that was something that I was experiencing in a variety of different ways when I started the podcast um, on a personal level, as well as on a political level. And then at the same time, it also felt like a lot of people were waking up in the same way that I felt I was waking up. You know, a lot of people refer to it as being (laughs) red-pilled, where all of a sudden you're like, oh, everything that I believed is not as I thought it was. Um, And so the same drugs sort of in another way referred to that idea of everyone sort of that, that waking up to sort of a it's sometimes referred to as like a heterodox view, um, but questioning ideology, particularly leftist ideology, progressive ideology, feminist ideology, um, all sorts of things, questioning the COVID narrative, um, these these beliefs that I had held my whole life around the left. Um, you know, I had always voted for our leftist political party and all of a sudden I found that I could no longer do that. Um, I found myself at odds with the feminist movement that I had been aligned with and allied with and working with for a long time. Um, and so on, on one hand, you know, in a way I felt a bit like I had been ostracized, but on another hand, I was finding this whole other group of people in this this whole other space where it felt free to explore things outside the box. Um, and, you know, personally, and again, through my work where people were like, you know, I've started to think that maybe this isn't right. <laughs> maybe this isn't true. Or maybe these, these people are not really my people. <laughs> so that's, that's sort of where the, the same drugs came from. I can relate to that a lot. And it's also, it's a name and a context now that you've shared that, that's sort of, it's playful, it's whimsical. It's also sort of that liminal space in between where drugs seem to represent a wavelength or a state of mind. And and the symbolism there, he's he's not saying I'm sober and you're still on drugs. He's saying we don't do the same drugs anymore, meaning I'm on my own trip. I, I could yeah. be just as divorced from reality as you are, but the 
spheres we've found ourselves in, the imaginary worlds that that we're in, you know, as much as they could be equally delusional, we're not on the same wavelength. Yeah, I'm not in this world anymore. I'm not in your world anymore. I've moved into a different world. So <laughs> that's and, where I'm moving towards to say, and you're stuck here a bit. <laughs> but it's like, who's to say where the truth is? Before we started recording, we were having an awesome conversation and there were all these moments that I was really just enjoying talking to you that I wish we could have captured. And one of those we were talking about was how you've been through several phases already of people sort of castigating you because you didn't fit their image of what what Megan Murphy was supposed to represent, that you've sort of gotten it from all sides, but that also you don't want to box yourself in because one of the sort of core values that's guiding you through all of this is about exploration, learning, and curiosity. It's not about rigidly clinging to a narrative. Yeah. What I really want to do always is to learn and to keep learning. And I think that inevitably, if you are genuinely open to and interested in learning and you're genuinely curious about people and society and the world around you and learning from different people and different cultures and and so on and so forth, you are going to grow and you're going to change your mind in ways that maybe some other people might not if they haven't taken that path. Um, There's a lot of people who are very comfortable staying within their box, within categories, within identities, um, political identities, for example, um, who don't want to be confronted with the fact that maybe they're wrong or maybe what they had invested so much in, in terms of maybe a community, an activist community, again, politics, um, might not be what they thought it was. You know, I I felt, and I think a lot of people feel this, um, for a really long time, for most of my life, I felt that left was best. <laughs> so, you know, I, I went through various phases when I was younger. I identified as a Marxist, and then I went through sort of an anarchist phase, and then I moved into just identifying as a socialist for a very long time. So that's how I identified for most of my adult life, I would say. And of course, as a feminist. Um, And I just, I never, I feel like I never challenged myself to question whether that was right, whether that was the most ethical, whether the policy proposals Um, attached to those ideas were best. Whether, you know, my approach to politics was really, I, you know, I I had invested so much in the, the idea that I and the left in general, that we were the good ones, that we were the humane ones, that we were the ethical ones, um, and that everybody else was not, which is, you know, a very black and white way of thinking. Um, it's just, it's, it's not true that people who are right wing or conservative or liberal or libertarian or whatever, anything outside of the left are, are, are not interested in building a better world or a more humane world, um, that they don't care about people, um, that they don't care about the world around us. And that's what I thought. And, and I think that is what leftists continue to believe, which is part of what led me to separate. Um, 
but also, yeah, I just, I want, I wanted to be free to think independently. And I was, I got a very clear sense from both from the left and from feminism that I was not allowed to do that. So, so I had to leave, you know, to free myself so that I could continue to explore and learn and figure out the best path for myself and to advocate for policies that were actually, you know, actually good and, and productive as far as I can understand it. You know, um, I'm obviously still learning and, and will continue to still learn, but that was something that I went through over the past few years. And I'm really glad that I did, but it did make a lot of people angry who didn't want to hear those things from me because I think they didn't want to question. They didn't want to question their their ideological persuasions and their um, politics. And ultimately, you'll, you will probably keep making people angry until sure. <laughs> it all whittles down to your core values, the people who appreciate the, the values that are guiding that exploration, right? What's, right. what's at the heart, not what's at the surface. Yeah, I mean, really what I want is the truth, you know. I want to be able to tell the truth. I don't want to tell a narrative. And and I do think that's what the left today, in any case, wants. And what much of feminism wants, is that they want a narrative. And if the truth conflicts with that narrative, then we don't engage with that truth. And that's not what I want. And I don't think that's who I am. Um, we talked earlier about authenticity and integrity. And those are values that are really important to me for myself, but also in others. Um, I, you know, I would have described it when I was younger, maybe that I didn't like fake people. Um, but I'm not, you know, I'm not a social climber. Like I don't, I don't choose my relationships or the people that I engage with because of who those people are, what they can give me or their status in the world. I, that's just, that's not what I want. I choose people who I think I can trust, first of all, um, and who are also themselves, who act with integrity and authenticity. Um, and, and so I want to reflect those values myself. And, and that, I think necessarily means that you do have to be an independent thinker and you do have to push back even when it's not a popular thing to do, which is something I've been doing for a long time. And you shift your focus. One thing yeah. captures your attention for a while. It seems important. You're compelled to, to dive in and, and learn a lot about it, right? And then that curiosity or shifting priorities will compel us elsewhere as well. You know, I wanted to share with you some some thoughts that have been on my mind from sort of a different part of my life than I usually share on my podcast. Um, as as I've mentioned, I've been chronically ill for a while now. So I got COVID in um, uh, my symptoms came on in late February 2022, right after a trip to Mexico. And, um, and I've never been the same ever since. I had a long crawl back to you know, over the course of many months, I got back to about 80% of my previous energy level. And then I pushed myself too hard and I crashed. I was at 30. Now I'm on new medications, new supplements, trying a lot of different things. And I've been in a sort of grieving process. I think for the first year, 
it felt like a temporary situation that was just taking a while to resolve. And then I crossed a, a threshold where I realized that my life might never be the same. And I think that parallels or mirrors what we all went through at different stages of adjusting to the pandemic, regardless or not of whether or not we or our loved ones are personally sick. There was that, you know, two weeks to stop the spread, <laughs> which by the yeah. way is when you started your podcast. And that's another thing I want to ask about. You started your podcast in March of 2020. So I'm very curious what that was like. But, um, you know, we went through different stages of adjustment and grief and realizing that, that life would never be the same. And trying yeah. to figure out, well, what what is still true and what's a thing of the past and what is reformulating in some new way as we speak. So I've been in my process for the last year that I've been chronically ill. And um, I had a really low day the other day. And I had this sudden, intense longing for beauty. And I started having all of these nostalgic memories of times where my life felt more beautiful. I felt that I lived in a beautiful world. Now, do, could, could I claim that I live in a be beautiful world? I could say that, but it would be more an intellectual concept that I want to agree with. Um, mm -hmm. And there are certainly some very beautiful things in my life. The love that I have in my life is beautiful. Um and, and many other things about my life are beautiful too, but I no longer have the sense that I live in a beautiful world. And I remember a few years of my life where I did, and it was, it was every little thing. It was the quality of time spent with friends. It was the feeling I had in the place that I lived. It was mm -hmm. the, the nature of the community. And it was the way that the community I lived in, and really I'm thinking of two different places that I lived had beauty as a guiding value. Regardless of how explicit that was made, it was a felt sense that permeated everything, that the people around me love love and they love beauty and they love the spiritual and they love the natural and they're not harsh critics or judges. They don't feel terribly self-conscious about all the hokey ways that we celebrate and cherish and cultivate beauty. They just, if it's beautiful, if it's good, if it's natural, if it's spiritual, they celebrated it. And that was the type of community that I belonged to for a time in my life. And while I could never go back because that place isn't the same and also I'm not the same, my priorities have shifted. Um, I'm, you know, there's, there's many things that are different now, but, but there's something I started feeling deeply nostalgic for about that time. Mm -hmm. And and I realized I was thinking about beauty and how being visual creatures, when we think about beauty, we think of it primarily in a visual way. And that's what women mm -hmm. are taught to believe when it comes to body image stuff. We're taught to believe in these certain visual aesthetic ideals of beauty and to have experiences that are actually lacking in beauty, lacking in sensory beauty for our own embodied sense in order to try to fit that aesthetic ideal. But really, when I think of beauty and I think of the most beautiful moments in my life, I think of what all five of my senses were experiencing together in harmony and how that synchronized with an inner felt sense of contentment, serenity, harmony, alignment with the world around me. And so I've been thinking about beauty, right? And how I was longing not just to see beautiful things, but to feel beautiful sensations on my skin 
and and to smell and and taste and hear and to live in a world where it felt like like the beautiful was celebrated and cherished and cultivated. I was thinking about all this and how we can't access beauty through a screen. At best, we can see a representation of beauty through a screen that sparks yeah. something within us, right? All right, so bear with me. This is it. <laughs> I'm going somewhere with this. I mean, I just wanted to share that experience, but also, you know, when it comes to the topic of sexual ethics, which is something that you talk and write about a lot, Mm-hmm. We need guiding values and something something that I've tweeted about in the past, and I realized today as I was looking through your blog that you've um, blogged about this, is that consent alone is not an adequate guiding value for sexuality. And when it comes to the left, they seem to think that consent should be the only guiding value. Um, and their notion of consent is quite um, prescriptive as well. Yeah. And I've been thinking about with all the culture war stuff, it's all very, it's very left brained, heady. You know, we spend when we're on Twitter, when we're in these culture war arguments, we're very disembodied, we're intellectual. And it's like we have to make this intellectual case for why we're right and the other guy's wrong, or why, you know, we're trying to make a point and we back it up with facts and statistics. And show no weakness, right? Like you're, you have to, you have to pretend that you're absolutely certain, right? Mm hmm. But, but that's missing something. It's yeah. missing connection to who we are and and what's actually valuable in life. And mm-hmm. I think people are afraid to uh, afraid to show that because it's not adequately secular. You know, there is something that no matter how broad one's sense of spirituality might be, or no no matter how much they might not even consider themselves to be a religious person, when we start getting into saying something that sounds as insane in the culture wars as beauty is a guiding value for me. Well, then it's like we're th- it feels like we're throwing reason and facts and statistics out the window and we're undermining our case. But I realized that for me personally, beauty is actually a really important guiding value. It's like that saying, we need bread but roses too um, from the suffragette movement. That um, we, we cannot survive on the mere basic necessities we need something beyond that. We need beauty in order to feed the soul. And, and I, I think that my objections to a lot of things that I find morally distasteful aren't just coming from an analytical position. They're also coming in harmony with that, with an embodied felt sense. And, and I realize that, that valuing beauty and wanting to live in a beautiful world is part of why I do what I do. So that's just been on my mind swirling around lately. And I just kind of sort of wanted to muse about it with you and hand it over to you for reflection. Yeah. I mean, I think that what we were told, I probably wouldn't frame it as beauty, but I do, I understand what you mean now that you've explained it. But um, I mean, what happened to us during the COVID lockdowns was that we were told to just, you know, survive. Right. Like we were told that we didn't really need community, celebration, joy, human touch, friendship, relationships like uh, nature outdoors. The message was, of course, stay inside, stay inside. Don't touch anybody. Don't hug. Don't breathe. No gathering, no parties, no, you know, religious 
um, gatherings or celebrations, no funerals, no birthdays. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are such huge, important, fundamental parts of our lives. And, and we were told to stay inside our apartments and stare at screens and that we could just replace all of this with the virtual. And you can't. You know, people were told they could celebrate birthdays online, have cocktail hours online, do all of their, you know, exercise, <laughs> their exercise classes online, that they could have friendships and relationships and funerals and weddings online. And I think it's, it's so sick. And I guess, I mean, one thing that I learned is that the virtual can absolutely not replace face-to-face in life, celebration, traditions, friendship, love, anything. Um, I mean, I work online and that's fine, but I'm not going to do friendship or joy. (laughs) You know, you can't really experience joy online. You might experience like a dopamine rush when you get likes online, but I think that's a completely different thing. Um, and the things that are, I mean, I'm, I'm really happy right now and I've never struggled with major mental health issues. So I will acknowledge that I can't totally relate to that experience. You know, I've never, I've obviously struggled with depression when bad things happen, um, or anxiety when I'm experiencing a lot of stress, (laughs) um, but not prolonged for years on end kind of thing. Um, and I, I used to feel really happy in Vancouver. I spent 40 years in Vancouver. I was born in Vancouver. I was raised there. You know, all of my friends were there. My family was there. My communities were there. Um, and at a certain point things changed. And part of that had to do with, a political change and the fact that, I was severely ostracized and punished and threatened um, by these progressive communities and leftists and, of course, trans activists in Vancouver. And it became scary for me to go to certain places. You know, there are certain areas of Vancouver I would never go to alone. Um, I felt unsafe just, like, walking down the street by myself. Um, And... That's a really awful feeling when it's somewhere that used to feel like your community and your safe space and where you would walk down the street and see friends and people you knew or go to the bar and see friends and people you knew. And that felt like, you know, a community in a way. And all of a sudden, people won't speak to you or they're trashing you online because you said that men can't be women (laughs) or because you're defending women-only spaces. Um, And, you know, so I left Vancouver during COVID. Um, I just couldn't take it anymore, and I didn't want to. I I don't want to live like this. I don't want to live online. I can't survive without human touch. You know, I was living alone in an apartment with my dog, thank God. Um, But it's not humane. And I left and moved to Mexico, and almost instantly I was much happier um, obviously it's much easier to exist outside and in out, out, outdoor spaces, which is really healthy for people in general. You know, I 
I see sunlight every day. I'm outside every day. I leave the house. I see people I know walking down the road, walking to the store, going into town. I know my neighbors. Um, I feel really safe here. It's, you know, it's a small, it's a small town with a lot going on. So it's far from sleepy. It's pretty chaotic, but um, you never feel or I don't ever feel alone or isolated here. And I feel like there's a lot more joy and I feel like people value celebration and human contact and family and friends um, so much more than in Canada um, or in Vancouver. I feel like people are way less judgmental. People don't really care what your politics are. We barely even talk about politics. Um, you know, if you like somebody who likes someone, I feel like people are much more accepting here. Um, but I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I feel, I feel genuinely happy most days. Um, I feel like I have a really balanced life and lifestyle here that I could never have in Vancouver. Not anymore, anyway. Um, so yeah, people are like, when are you coming home? Or like, when are you coming back to real life? I'm like, this is my real life and I like it better. And I understand that it seems weird to some people, but I'm happy and I, I like my friends and I like my community and, and I love, you know, so much about this town. I love how janky it is and weird and how sometimes things don't work and you know, nothing is really clear and things are a little bit chaotic. You definitely have to be very flexible to exist here. You don't have access to everything. I mean, people, if you, if I lived back in Vancouver, I'd have access to every single thing that I wanted it, within, you know, 24 hours max, you know, Uber Eats, um, Amazon deliveries. Um, you just, you can have every single little thing that you want. And then at some point you realize, or I hope that people realize that that's not actually what is going to make you happy in life. It's about connections. Primarily it's about connections and relationships. You know what I mean? And people, I think a lot of people unfortunately have forgotten that, especially people living in urban settings maybe. If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, Look no further. I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod 
and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, 8Sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. That's such a big shift and a bold move to recognize that you're not happy where you are and just up and leave like that. I, yeah. I was looking at your Substack before we started talking, and I saw the pictures of your face on a telephone pole, like like some kind of wanted sign because you dared to say that men can't be women. And um, that must have been an adjustment process. Were you already fluent in Spanish before you moved to Mexico? Oh, no, not at all. I'm still not fluent in Spanish. I'm doing my best, but... <laughs> um, how do you, how I mean, do you get I didn't so comfortable... Plan. And feel so at home in a different country with a different language. I don't know. I mean, I there's a lot of English speakers here. Um, you know, most of my friends here are American or Canadian. And a lot of them came here for the exact same reason that I did. A lot of people came here during COVID. They were like, I am out of here. Um you know, I most of them did not agree with all the mandates and were concerned about what was going on in, in Canada or America. I was genuinely scared I was going to get stuck there. Like, I was like, they're shutting the borders. Like, I'm not going to be able to get out. I do not want to get trapped here. Um, I was really concerned about what Justin Trudeau was trying to do in terms of controlling um, speech online. Um, and I just thought, you know, I'm not going to be able to work here. Like, they're going to ban me from the internet. I thought, you know, like, I was worried I was going to be imprisoned, honestly, for, like, hate speech. There's so many things that I was worried about happening in Canada. Um, and and a lot of people that I'm around here had, had similar concerns. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, I I didn't leave with the intention of never going back to Canada. I sort of thought maybe, oh, I'll stay for a couple of months or maybe a few months. I'll see how things go. But things at that point were getting worse in Canada in terms of the lockdowns and the mandates and the propaganda and the way people were treating each other, which was an incredibly hateful way. Um, the way people were talking about one another, talking about people who didn't align with them politically, you know, who didn't necessarily support the vaccine mandates, um, who supported the the truckers, for example, um, who were not on board with all of the lockdowns. And I just, I found that when I was here, people were just not like that. And I was so relieved. I was like, oh, this is not, Vancouver's not the real world. That's not the whole world. You know, these people are, in fact, a lot of them are living in their own bubble. You know, they're only engaging with people exactly like them. They're only engaging with people who see things exactly as they do. They're only engaging with people who are their same, you know, education level, income level, age, background, probably skin color in many cases, um, and there was a much wider, there is a much wider diversity of people here, obviously. 
Um, you know, there's a lot more working class people. There's obviously tons of Mexicans who live here, but also people from all around the world. Um, and it's, you know, I mean, that's that's a great way to learn about people in the world is just by talking to people who are different than you. Um, talking to people who have different experiences and views than you, really different experiences and views than you, and finding that it it doesn't really matter too much um, in terms of getting along with somebody. You don't need to have the exact same political views. It doesn't really necessarily matter unless you are the kind of person who isn't going to want to engage with somebody who disagrees with you on various issues. Um but yeah, it was just, it was really refreshing. And, and, you know, we also weren't locked down here at all. So everybody was still out and having fun and dancing and singing and partying and sharing drinks and spitting in each other's faces. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's what I'm a really social person. And I just, I really, I can't, I, I can't handle being isolated. I think some people manage it better than others. And I actually, I really like spending time alone too. You know, I need a lot of alone time, partly for work because I'm a writer and I work alone, but I like to go for dinner by myself and like read a book by myself. I need that too, but I don't actually want to be without a social scene, you know, like, and I, I want to go out and have fun and I want to be around people and I want to talk to people and meet new people and make new friends. I feel so sorry for people who are my age. And I know a lot of people like this back in Canada who think that because, you know, they think that I think once they turned 30, that was it for them. Like, oh, well, it's, it's too hard to make new friends. We don't do that anymore. We're just going to hang out with the same people all the time. You know, this is it for us. It's, let's shut it down. And it's not. You can meet new people and make new friends and have fun for the rest of your life. Um, and I guess I felt like a lot of people just gave up and I would, was not ready to give up. I still want to have adventures. <laughs> the life you describe in Mexico sounds beautiful in that same way that I have been feeling nostalgic for for a time in my life that I remember feeling that way. Just the day-to-day -day life and what it's like to be in my community and to feel the sun on my skin and to see a friendly face. Yeah. Um, and I, I want to say as far as the lockdowns go and all that, that I don't think it's at all clear what we should have done. I think there are some major competing needs and values here. And this is one of those things that people love to oversimplify depending on what team they're on. Like, right. so a lot of people get perplexed on Twitter, of course, um, <laughs> home to much perplexity, um, when they discover that I am somebody who has long COVID and also has concerns about mandates and lockdowns and things like that. Because to them, those issues have become lumped together where they almost think that if you're anti-mandate and anti-lockdown, that you don't believe in long COVID. You think it's a made-up psychosomatic illness. And it's not. There are so many of us, thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of us, who were very active, ambitious, healthy, independent people, aspirational people who have no desire to claim some victim status and no desire to join the Spoonie Club, um, who feel incredibly frustrated about being stuck in this body that doesn't want to cooperate. 
um, my my heart rate and blood pressure and mitochondria will not cooperate right now with what I want them to do. Um, I would be out there being social and adventurous and all of that too. So, you know, I'm one of those people that doesn't fit the mold that certain people have in mind about what box someone should fit in, that either you're pro-liberty, pro-freedom, you don't want any freedoms taken away, and therefore you think all COVID stuff is just a myth that's been overblown to justify oppression. Like, you think either that or COVID's really serious and we need masks and vaccine mandates and all of this kind of stuff. And my, my story is I actually... I don't know what I would do if I could do it all over again because I lived a very restricted lifestyle for the first year of the pandemic and then sort of a gradually less restricted lifestyle for the second year. And then I took some chances and I went out and had fun. I went to Mexico and I had a great time with my love and we boogie boarded and we had so much fun and we got COVID. And he was fine after two weeks, and I've never been the same. And, you know, I needed that. I really needed that trip to Mexico. But this illness has been hell for me. It's cost probably tens of thousands of dollars of lost productivity. It's taken a toll on my mental health. It's probably taken a toll on my longevity. Um, it's it's had a huge cascading ripple effect. And I don't know that I could actually do the math and say, whether it would have been better to continue living a restricted lifestyle if that meant that I had a chance of never becoming ill like this. I mean, as I understand it, this what's called long COVID can happen with any virus or many other viruses. Um, I think that people get viruses and they can get stuck with these symptoms long term. So it's not to me, I know you're not asking for advice or comfort or anything like that. But to me, it's not specific to COVID. This this can happen with viruses. And honestly, I think you would have gotten COVID every, anyway. I mean, it's, I think that COVID was, I think that one of the silliest things about the lockdown was trying to avoid COVID when in reality, the vast, vast, vast majority of people were going to get it eventually regardless. And we were sort of just staving off the inevitable um, you know, obviously people still get COVID when they're, they've gotten the vaccine. Um, and I think that it certainly would have been wise to protect the vulnerable and for those who were vulnerable to protect themselves. Um, but I think otherwise it makes sense for people to just operate you know, you you could try to be safe as best you can, but I mean, how how do you you can't avoid it? It was, it, you know, it's a virus; it's going to go around, um, and and you yeah, can't lock I mean, yourself yes away no. forever. <laughs> I have such mixed feelings about it because you're right that the one of the post viral conditions I have <clears throat> pots. Um, people have gotten it from Epstein Barr, and they've. People have gotten it, yeah, as a, as a post-viral illness. I do think COVID is particularly nasty. The spike protein and some kind of novel features to all the different mm. systems of the body it infects. I'm currently reading the Long COVID Handbook, which is fantastic. I highly recommend it to anyone else in my situation. But it's it's like there is this culture of safetyism, and then there's all the fear. And I think it was shortly before the lockdowns that, or shortly before the pandemic, that I had 
read, uh, I'd gone on a major Jonathan Haidt binge and I read, um, what's it called? The Righteous Mind. Mm-hmm. And I learned moral foundations theory and about the the role that disgust plays in morality and how right, I've read that there's too, that connection. Yeah. <laughs> there's that connection between our physical visceral disgust and our moral disgust instinct. And in this book that was written before the pandemic, there were some studies cited about how even little reminders, little visual cues like the sight of hand sanitizer or being asked to wash your hands before doing a particular activity um, uh, made these unwitting participants in studies uh, behave in more morally rigid ways. So just the reminder that uh, people or things around you could be contaminated with germs was enough to make people more morally rigid. I remember learning that. It was fresh in my mind when the pandemic hit. And I just, I've wondered ever since, what have the last few years done to us? I mean, it's, yeah, it's funny because I don't know exactly what it revealed, except that a lot of people have very different values. Um because I was nervous about COVID early on when we really didn't know what it was um, and how serious it was. But it didn't take long for me to learn based on data that someone like me wasn't likely to, you know, end up in the hospital or with really serious symptoms. Um, And so I, you know, I sort of took the approach that I value life and happiness and freedom um, more than anything else. You know, I was like, I can't just spend my life trying to avoid getting sick. And so that's what I did. And that's what everybody that I know almost here did. And um, things were fine. And, And meanwhile, Back in Canada, I just found it so strange to observe all these people just, I, you know, I almost forgot that people were still locking themselves up in their apartments and, and wearing masks all the time and doing this social distancing after so long. You know, this was, you know, a year and a half in and, and even longer. Um, and it just, it, it, I mean, it never, that, that part didn't ever really make sense to me. You know, like, I don't want to get sick. Nobody wants to get sick. But to just stop living to avoid getting sick did not make any sense to me. Um, and yeah, and so much of it stopped making sense to me. And I, I just, I couldn't accept and I refused to accept the, um, the, the removal of our, you know, charter rights in Canada. Um, or civil liberties, things like free speech, the right to protest, freedom of movement, freedom of religion, freedom of expression. It seemed so frightening to me. And and I was, and I, you know, I came from that place of, of being a progressive who thought that it was very important for the state and the government to, to have a, a major role in building a good society, a healthy society where we take care of one another. I was always very anti-individualist. Um, I thought that, you know, those Americans who were obsessed with their property and their guns and their free speech were selfish. And now I'm 
I'm like that, you know, not that <laughs> I don't, I've never had a gun. I don't know how to shoot a gun, but I mean, I think so that it's liberty. really, yeah, I value liberty and I, I support people's right to, you know, protect themselves, <laughs> to be armed, obviously to have property, their own property and be able to protect their families and their property. And of course, I absolutely support free speech and freedom of expression. You know, I don't trust any government, especially after observing what happened over the pandemic to determine, you know, what we, you know, to, to say you, you, you can't leave this space. You can't leave your house. You can't leave this town. You can't leave this community because we're here to keep you safe and we know what's best. I think it's super dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. It sets, it paves the way for the removal of all kinds of liberties. Uh, I'm going to introduce one more confounding variable just because I'm I'm on a, a binge of learning more about long COVID, which I wish I had done a year ago, which is that I, I want to say you're, you're, you're right, but not in the way that you would expect when you say that you're at low risk because healthy, active women between 30 and 50 are among the highest risk population for the type of long COVID I have ones who get a mild initial infection. But you know what makes one of the biggest differences between those of us in our demographic who end up where I am a year later and those who rebound is is rest and stress management in the few weeks and months following. So I want to say that on the one hand, don't think you're immune because you're in the same demographic as me and look at me. But on the other hand, the lifestyle that you live and the way that you have protected your heart and spirit, the way that you are the sort of person who packed up and left Vancouver because it wasn't fun for you anymore. And you went to a place where you can breathe fresh air and smile at people on the street. That And get that lots of shows, vitamin D. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the fact that you, you won't let your life be stressful and miserable. And I think my no. biggest mistake wasn't going to Mexico and exposing myself to COVID. My biggest mistake was allowing myself to have so much stress in my life in the months that I was still recovering. Now, Mm. I'm going to be gentle with myself and say a lot of that stress was unavoidable. The move, we had to follow through with that move. That was our plan. The fact that the house I moved out of got burglarized was beyond my control. The fact that my license came under attack four days after we moved was beyond my control. And, you know... With regard to some of the other things, like maintaining my decision to follow through with launching my podcast in May of last year, even while all this was going on, that was maybe a bit of stubbornness on my part. That was that was me sort of saying to the universe, okay, you can throw all these stresses at me, but you can't make me change my plans because I'm a victorious person who makes things happen when I want them to happen. So who's to say whether in the end it was wise of me to launch my podcast in May of last year? if that added to my stress and my busyness or whether mm. I would have been any better off if I'd waited. So many beautiful things have come from, through having this podcast, but I think I'm just seeing the complexity of it all and maybe feeling a little bit envious of your lifestyle. <laughs> but I want to switch gears though, because there's, there's so much else to talk about unless you had anything else to say on that. Um. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I guess just that I do, I've always, I've always, made living a balanced lifestyle important in that I refuse to, you know, like I've been through a lot of stressful things and I do work a lot. I work hard, but I also 
no matter how much I have to do, which is, you know, I don't, my work is never done. I've never finished my work. I always have more stuff to do. You're probably in a similar situation than me. You know, like I could work 24 seven, right? I still do I'm like, okay, nope. Tonight is the night I'm going to go out and see my friends and socialize and have fun. And I'm not going to look at my computer or look at my phone. Um, and you have to do that. Like, it's not, I don't think that it's a good value to, you know, just make your life horrible and stressful all the time. Um, yeah. You know, I don't, I also, you know, I don't make a ton of money. Like if I was the kind of person who was going to just work myself to death um, and stress out constantly about how I'm not getting enough done and I'm not getting everything done, then I would probably be a richer person, but I'd probably be a less happier person. So I make those kinds of choices. Like I do, I, you know, here I try to go to the gym four days a week. I try to go outside every day. You know, I try to go read paper books. I try to spend time by myself and I'm not by any means perfect. I totally do unhealthy things all the time, but <laughs> I also, I know I, I I know that for me, things like getting enough sleep and not being stressed out and having like a balanced lifestyle and being happy and valuing my relationships and things like that are are important. And and I I know that those are the right choices to me because I know that I'm I'm doing OK. <laughs> I think it's really good that we're having this conversation about lifestyle and balance because it's a little bit of a peek behind the scenes of how a Stephanie Wynn or a Megan Murphy lives their life. And people look to people like you and I and they're like, oh, my God, you're like this warrior in the culture wars. How do you do it? How do you stay sane? And it's like, you know, that's it's not like all there that. is to life. <laughs> balance. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I've so always said that it's like because people have obviously asked me a lot over the years, like how do you manage all this? Like, how do you manage these like attacks and pylons and da, 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 da. And it's like, I turn off the internet and I leave <laughs> my house and I go outside <laughs> or I go spend time with my friends and I don't talk about that stuff. We talk about other stuff. It mm -hmm. helps a lot. <laughs> and I've noticed whenever I'm in Mexico, the pace is different. There's yeah. in Mexico, Coming from the U.S., there is a noticeable lack of perfectionism. Like you talk about how things can be broken and it takes the time it takes to fix them. Or if you don't have money to update it, you just don't update it. And there is something refreshing about that. I remember um, not last time in Mexico, but the, the previous time I was in Mexico, unbeknownst to me at the time, it was right at the start of the pandemic. It was February 2020 that I was there. And I remember noticing this cultural difference um, where I noticed, you know, Americans, there's this perfectionism and obsession with purity. And, and I was thinking about like veganism in particular and how it's, it takes a lot of privilege to be able to follow a vegan diet because you have to have access to all these specialty foods and things like that. And part of the the idea of veganism in, let's say, modern American culture is that I think it, it caters to the part of us that wants to know that we live a harm-free lifestyle, which isn't really possible. It's not actually possible to live in this world without doing harm. I think each of us mm -hmm. has sort of the obligation to figure out um, 
what we value and and how our values guide us to try to shift the balance of the good that we contribute to the toll that we take on the world um, in the way that resonates with our value system. That doesn't mean that anybody else has to agree with you about your own personal calculations of, you know, whether that balance is accurate or whether it matches their values. But I felt like in Mexico, I could feel that there's a cultural acceptance of that, that you you kill to eat and you're yeah. not perfect. And there's not this expectation that the world should cater to you that in addition to having all the wealth and resources that you have as like the average middle-class American citizen, for instance, that on top of all of that, the whole world catering to you, you should also get the world to cater to you the moral fulfillment of feeling like you live a harm-free lifestyle. And I just felt that noticeable absence of that purity and perfectionism in Mexico. And it is so relaxing to be around. It's like when you're steeped in it in America, or maybe it's like this in Canada, you don't feel you don't feel how much it affects you until you get out of it. Is that your experience? Yeah. I mean, life happens and life includes a lot of bad stuff. It just does. And it always will. Um, and again, I think that being a leftist in a place like Vancouver, I believed that you could have a world like that was free of violence, um, and hardship and you can't, that's absolutely not possible. And I don't think that it's helpful to pretend as though you can. Um, and the truth is that it's, you know, I think that you are forced to accept that when you're poor and working class. Uh, you don't have the luxury to try to live a perfect, harm-free life. You just have to live. And sometimes that means that, you know, the environment or animals are affected negatively. And it just is. And I'm not saying that it's good. <laughs> but, you know, like it's a it real... Keeps you humble. Yeah, and I mean, you come from a real place. It's a privilege when you don't have to see that and acknowledge that. And you don't yeah. have to see that and acknowledge that if you're living in a condo or Vancouver, and you do if you're living in a kind of ghetto little village in Mexico. You see it all the time. Um, and, and yeah, and the, there's no expectation of perfection here. I mean, it's almost the opposite. Things take forever to get done. People don't show up. Things fall apart. The power goes out. Sometimes you wake up and your Wi-Fi is not working and you don't know why and you don't know when it's going to come back. And like there's no milk at the store or whatever it is, you know, like you don't have control over everything here in the way that you and it's not people in Vancouver don't have control over anything either. But I think they think they do. I think mm. people have a sense that they really can control their surroundings um, and what happens to them and how they feel. Um, and I think that causes people to lose sight of, of life and the fact that life is, is absolutely not controllable. You know, you can make all the right choices and do all the right things and still end up sick, mm -hmm. you know, in an accident, lose your job, um, a, a whole variety of really terrible things can happen to you that you just don't have control over and, and you need to learn how to cope with adversity. And that expectation of control is what sets the way for disappointment, anger, entitled rage, and mm -hmm. a whole lot of strife. 
yeah, this idea that you have the right to not feel uncomfortable, the right not to feel challenged, the right not to be around people you don't want to be around. It's a very privileged position, and it's not realistic. That's not how the real world is. Again, especially for people who are not extremely privileged. You don't have that choice if you're poor or working class. You don't have any control over who you're around or who you engage with. You would never expect to be able to not feel uncomfortable. As a therapist, I've gotten an up-close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving your cells the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. Megan, I'm inclined to tell you a story that I've only shared with a few people. Um, but it feels like the right moment for it because we're talking about culture. And I'm really glad that w- that we we got into this because I've been curious about your whole experience as sort of a Canadian expat living in Mexico and, and the cultural differences. Um, so I had an experience in Mexico on that trip in February 2020. I was with one of my best girlfriends from a long time ago from actually the town mm-hmm. I used to live in where I had that beautiful life. Um, that was one thing that I enjoyed about that life is I, I had the best girlfriends and we had a lot of women circles. Um, and, uh, so, <laughs> so I was in a rental car and, uh, it was my friends maybe first or second night there. Cause we'd come on slightly different timelines and we were staying in different Airbnbs. And I, I had found this beach because I'd been there a few days. And my first night when I got in from the airport and I was driving from the airport to my Airbnb, I stopped off at this beach and I saw this beautiful moonlight beach. It was warm. It was peaceful. I had it all to myself. And so I thought I wanted to bring my friend back. The the moon was maybe waning gibbous. So maybe we were going to get some moonlight. And I am. So I'm driving my friend and we have a nice time at the beach and uh and then we get in the car to go back and we I'm driving I get on the on-ramp and this on-ramp is designed um in a way that's 
very counterintuitive for an American. And uh, it basically spits me out right into traffic in, in a way that um, if it was designed the same way in America, I would have had time to merge. There would have been like a gradual merging of the lanes. But instead, I didn't realize what was happening. And it basically spit me out blindly right into the middle of traffic of people going, Gosh. you know, 50 miles an hour. Yeah. And Driving I... in Mexico is terrifying. <laughs> I'm never going to do it again. Yeah. That's my last time renting a car in a foreign country. And I basically had like a car accident that if if things had been a second this way or a foot that way, like I could have died. But this... Um, large SUV basically skimmed right up against my driver's side door. And it was, you know, my adrenaline through the roof, right? It was terrifying, but I was fine. And he was fine. And our cars were scratched. And um, so, of course, we pull off and it's nighttime and it's just me and my other gringa friend and this Mexican dude. And we speak poquito espanol and he speaks and so in my broken Spanish and his broken English, he's yelling at me. He's like a middle-aged, not too large, but definitely very angry man. <laughs> and, and he's, of course, blaming me for the whole thing. And, you know, he's probably right because I'm the, I'm the driver in a foreign country that doesn't know what I'm doing. Um, I, I'm sure a native person to local to the area wouldn't have made that same mistake. Although I later found out when I talked to my Airbnb host, he was like, oh yeah, that section of highway is designed terribly. And it's in a highly, mm. you know, an area frequented by tourists. So I'm sure things like that happen more often than they should. But anyway, we had this whole encounter, right? Where I'm trying to talk him off the ledge. He's threatening to call the cops on me. And I'm thinking, I'm doing the math in my head real quick. And I'm like, do I want to deal with Mexican cops when I don't no. know if the law is on my side? And uh, and to make matters more complicated, there was an open container of alcohol in the vehicle. Um, and there's a whole like reason as to why that was that does not pertain to any particularly irresponsible behavior, but it looks bad and I don't know what the rules are. And I'm in a foreign country and I'm thinking Mexican cops, Mexican jail, what the hell is going to happen to me? And so I can tell this guy's angry and he's trying to intimidate me. And, um, all because his car is a little scratched. And he's not worried about how shaken up I am. He's not, you know, being valiant in this situation. He's being aggressive. And I had to think really quickly on my feet. And my girlfriend, she was standing there just watching the whole thing, tracking and making very helpful observations for me in the background. And um, long story short, I negotiated to save my life. And I was very proud of all of my skills rising to the occasion in my broken Spanish to basically stay grounded and talk him down and not let him intimidate me, but not escalate the situation further. And ultimately, mm -hmm. I negotiated with him, like, I see you're very angry. We both had a fault in this. What is it that you want? I see you're trying to intimidate me. Is it money that you want? Here's how much money I have. And I had to figure out, I don't know my rights. The cops aren't on my side. And... um. This, it was just this really primal moment between two animals, two human animals. There's one, you know, we're, we've both got adrenaline racing through our systems, but he's going on the attack and I'm maintaining my ground and sending him the signal with my whole body that you're not going to attack me. 
and I had to figure out what I could do. And what I ended up doing was basically paying him off, giving him the cash that I had on hand. Um, and, uh, and, um, making sure that he deleted the photos from his phone of, um, my license plate. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then I had, I had to work it out with the rental car insurance company about like what happened to the car. But ultimately all that happened was I lost money. Like that cost me extra, but it didn't cost me my life. It didn't cost me anything legally. And it was just such this primal moment that it wouldn't have happened like that in this country because we're so reliant on our infrastructure and our systems. Yeah. And those systems are crumbling. We are becoming yeah. a more and more corrupt country where, like like I was telling you, I think, before we started recording, I once needed the police in Portland. I had to wait 10 hours. The house I'd moved out of, I had vacated. There was nothing there for me. It was cold. It was unfurnished. I had come there just to find a house I had vacated but still owned, burglarized, and destroyed and um and I had to wait 10 hours for the police. So we are increasingly becoming like Mexico, like a lawless land where you can't trust the systems, but we're so accustomed to this culture of safetyism and perfectionism and control that we don't think we have to think on our feet. And yeah, I was think somebody's going to take care of end. us. Yeah, like, we in think this the moment, authorities like, in the state are always going to be on our side and there to take care of us and it's not true. <laughs> I was so glad that I had that experience in the end. I mean, it was terrifying, but it was like, you know, it was one of those moments that really builds your character and puts yeah. puts everything that you've been cultivating in yourself to the test. Like, can I think on my feet? Can I negotiate to save my life when I don't speak the language? Can I ground myself energetically and embody the message to this person that sends, says, you will not mess with me. What do you want? I'm going to talk you down. It was it was thrilling and I'm actually like getting excited sitting here talking about it. And so mm-hmm. that's my little that's my Mexico story and I'm grateful for it. Yeah, I mean you do you can't rely on anything here. I mean everything is sketchy and janky. Like the system changes all the time. Like you go to get like your your residency and you think you filled out all the forms it's like oh no you forgot this form and actually now we're closed (laughs) you know what I mean like you really just have to go with it and you've got to be able to be flexible and figure it out I mean and, and in situations like you were in it's almost always money you know it's all the cops Almost always you're just going to want money. The guy's going to want money. That's usually how you get yourself out of situations. Money here. Um, But yeah, I mean, you also have to be able to stay calm and think about your body language and try to communicate. And I mean, it's a good learning experience as much as it was terrifying (laughs) and dangerous. I mean, I've never I have yet to drive in Mexico. It's driving in Mexico is really scary and it is dangerous. Um, but I will someday because I'm hopefully going back to Canada to get my truck, (laughs) which will be another (laughs) crazy adventure that we'll see how that goes. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, those experiences uh, are really character building and they really like they build so much self-confidence. I'm sure you know that. I'm sure that you've experienced mm -hmm. that. I mean, I wrote about this recently when I wrote I wrote a way too long post for Substack um, that was essentially about 
how to be happy. And, you know, like that's a weird thing to say because the concept of happiness is so strange because I think that, you know, again, especially in the West, I think that people's expectations of happiness are like, I should feel happy all the time, which is just not how anybody feels. Um, like when I, I say I have I'm mental happy, illness and I need medication right now. Yeah. And I yeah, need everyone yeah. to coddle me. Like, yeah. I don't feel good right now. Like, I'm not experiencing joy right now. Like, <laughs> and or you're like, I feel troubled. I feel uncomfortable. I feel sad. I feel angry. I feel unsure, you know. Um, and I feel all of those things. Um, but I, th- I think what I mean is like, I feel good about my life and I feel fulfilled in my life and I'm happy with the balance and I feel... I feel good about what I'm doing in my life in general. Um, but yeah, like one of the things that I wrote in my, my list of like how to be happy is that you have to go through hard times. Like you have to experience adversity because that's how you learn how to like yourself because that's how you mm. learn to trust yourself. Like that's how you build <laughs> confidence and that's how you get to know yourself. And you're like, I can deal with stuff. Like I'm a competent person. That's how you feel empowered you know, this concept of empowerment, um, you know, which we we heard, we as women heard so much about just endlessly as part of third wave feminism, especially during the aughts, right? Like, this makes me feel empowered. You know, wearing high heels makes me feel empowered. Like, putting these sexy photos of myself on the internet makes me feel empowered. And that's not empowerment. That's not what empowerment means. Empowerment means that you feel like you have autonomy, like you feel like you have some some kind of control of your life. And again, you, of course, can't control everything, but sort of like you feel like confident. I can take care of myself. I know how to manage difficult situations, whether that's like a conflict in a relationship or the kind of thing that you experience, you know, like I feel confident that I can, you know, figure things out. Um, that I'm not just going to fall apart and crumble. Um, so, I mean, that's that's those are very vague de- definitions of both happiness and empowerment. But the, those kinds of experiences, unfortunately, are really, really important, I think, in terms of, yeah, really lear- learning to like ourselves and feeling good about ourselves. Spot on and so well said. And I, I really agree. I mean, I've, I've had so many formative experiences like that. I mean, they didn't all involve such a close brush with the death, but a few of them <laughs> did. And, and how sad is it that in the name of so-called mental health, uh, people are seeking to eradicate those very experiences that allow us to build self-respect and self-liking. I like the way you put it. And I'm also glad that you explained what that article was about because I wanted to read that article and it was behind a paywall. Sorry, (laughs) I hardly, I so rarely put things behind a paywall, but I also am like, like, okay, I want to give, you know, I want to provide something to people who are paying for subscriptions. I'm, Mm -hmm. it's, but again, it's so rare that I do it. And this was a, a very long, I actually spent a lot more time on that article than I, I normally do. Usually when I publish something, I I spend less than a day on it. Often I'll spend a few hours on it. But this one I worked on over like a week and it was sort of a bit out of my wheelhouse too. So I thought, okay, this is different and it's special and I'll offer it to, to my subscribers. But sorry. 
<laughs> right on. Well, that's the perfect transition because speaking of things that are behind paywalls um, and also speaking of how we maintain work-life balance and the fact that there's pressure on people like you and me to work 24-7, um, I have some special privileges that are behind a paywall. And um, so for listeners who haven't heard me plug this enough already, it is my locals community, somekindoftherapist.locals.com. It's only $8 a month. And you can get your first month free with promo code GRANDFATHER. So what do you have to lose? It's just getting started. And I'm really thankful to those early supporters who have joined from the start and helped get this off the ground. So the perks that come with joining my locals community are you get to ask questions of my future guests. So, um, And you also get to ask questions of me. I get a lot of questions in the form of emails and DMs and comments and things like that. And... I have to have some boundaries like we were talking about because if I were to answer all of those questions, I would never get anything else done and I would not get paid. That's why I created this community. If you want to ask me a question and we don't have a personal relationship that is mutually beneficial um, where I'm also getting something out of it or (laughs) talking on your podcast or something like that, then please give me $8 a month um, and join my community and you can ask all the questions you want and I will try to answer them. So that's another perk is that you can ask questions for my members only exclusive live streams where I will answer your questions. So that being said, shout out to Christo who has really helped this community get started by providing lots of excellent questions right from the beginning. You too can be part of this community and be like Christo and ask awesome questions of my awesome guests. So Christo's question for you, Megan, is please share your views on what the words feminine and masculine mean or what qualities you associate with those words. When feminine qualities are exhibited by a man, do they present differently than in a woman? And if so, how? Same question with masculine qualities are, or same question when masculine qualities are exhibited by a woman. Lastly, what do you think about the concept of complementarity between men and women? Is it legit or is it just another expression of misogyny? Oh, this is a very tough question. I mean, masculinity and femininity and gender is something that I've talked about and written about so much over the years. And yet, I think that it 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 does in some ways mean different things to different people. Um, I think that we can talk about, you know, positive masculine qualities and positive feminine qualities. I've been trying over the past couple of years to learn a lot more about, you know, what it means to be a good man and what men think it means to be a good man um, and and talk about, you know, really positive, masculine qualities, some of which are qualities that have been tarred as toxic and that aren't necessarily toxic. Um, I recently did an interview with uh, this guy from Portland, actually. He started the um, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He he brought Brazilian jiu-jitsu to Portland. So he has a gym there called Straight Blast Gym. Um, His name is Matt Thornton. And he just came out with a book called The Gift of Violence. And it was really interesting to me um, as somebody who for so long thought of violence as an inherently bad thing. And it's not. You know, violence is, first of all, a necessary part of life. But it also is a really good and important thing if you're protecting yourself or protecting others who are more vulnerable than you. Um, and it's it's really important for people to know how to protect themselves as best they can and to fight back. And something like martial arts and jujitsu that 
brings a practice um, and an ethic to violence is is super beneficial, I think, to anyone, but particularly to men who are honestly, of course, inherently more violent than women. They just are. Um, and so, you know, like I think the ability for men to, to know that they could hurt somebody, but to not do it unless absolutely necessary is a really positive form of masculinity. Um, and again, men who really know how to fight and men who, um, have been practicing martial arts for a long time can do that. And people think especially women, I think, think that fighting is inherently brutish. Um, you know, they think of things like MMA, for example, like the UFC, to just be, you know, like brutish men beating each other to a pulp and don't realize how much skill there is there and that there is an ethic behind it. And that a lot of those guys are actually the least violent guys around, not all of them. Um, but you know, I, I know a lot of men who do Muay Thai or, or jujitsu. Um, I know guys who fight in the UFC and they're really good men who are not necessarily aggressive and certainly don't behave in violent ways outside the ring or outside their practice. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting thing to learn. And I think that a lot of men could benefit from from knowing that, to be honest. I mean, we in our culture talk a lot about these incels um, and these guys who shoot up schools and leave these like these manifestos that are sometimes misogynistic and sometimes just reflecting feeling lonely and angry and bitter at life. Things are unfair. And it's like, you know, what would have helped these guys a lot is getting off of the computer and off these like toxic Reddit threads or whatever they're watching online, you know, off of porn sites for sure and getting into the gym, getting a practice, learning how to fight, putting their aggression somewhere useful and learning to feel good about themselves and building confidence. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't, that's, that's something that I've learned about masculinity that I think is really important. Um, femininity is a tough one for me personally, because I've always rejected femininity in a lot of ways. And I know that when I say that people sometimes don't understand what I mean, because they're like, but you're wearing eyeliner and you have long nails and you flirt with men. Um, but ever since I was a kid, I've really disliked femininity. <laughs> I've never felt like a very feminine person. Um, we've talked a bit about this before, I think. But, you know, I was a tomboy when I was a kid. I didn't really want to hang out with the girls. I didn't want to do girl things. I didn't want to do, like, ballet. I didn't want to wear pink. Um, I wanted to do... I wanted to have adventures. Um, and I wanted to be strong. And the things that boys typically did were more interesting to me than the things that girls typically did. Um, as I've become an adult, I've learned that that view is actually sort of in sexist in and of itself. Um, and that I think that in some ways actually feminism denigrated the feminine. Um, you know, I grew up thinking 
being a wife and a stay-at-home mom was kind of pathetic. Um, that that was inherently oppressive, and I don't necessarily think that's true anymore. Of course, you know, motherhood's probably the most important thing in the entire world. <laughs> I don't want it. <laughs> I don't like babies. I don't want to have kids. But it's very important. You know, it's 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 probably the most important role um, that exists. And so I don't know. I mean, I'm. I'm never going to be a, a very feminine, in quotations, woman. I'm never going to be passive or nurturing. Um, I'm never going to be the kind of person who gets along or tries to be polite or tries to act ladylike. That's not who I am. Um, I often enjoy the company of men more than women. I feel like I can be myself. I can be rude, and I'm not going to have somebody tutting at with me, which... I'm afraid has happened with a lot of my female friends. Oh, you can't say that. Don't say that word. That's rude. Or like the, there's this expectation that you have to be polite and phony all the time, which I don't have the energy for. I don't want to play this like, you're a queen. You're perfect. You're so beautiful. Any man who doesn't want you is obviously stupid and terrible. And everything you do is right and perfect. You know, I don't think that's ever true or helpful. <laughs> Um, I mean, I know that I'm stereotyping women in a lot of ways, but I'll, you know, those stereotypes are often true. Like men don't engage with each other like that. They are more rude to each other and they often get over conflicts a lot faster than women do. Women are more likely to, and I found tend to hold grudges, give the silent treatment, be passive aggressive, um, and not address the problem. I find that with men, Often they'll just say straight up like, fuck you or like um, or tell you that they're angry at you and then you can have your little fight or disagreement and then the next day it's OK and you can just go back to being friends and you don't really have to talk about it ever again. Um, so I think I've gone on a long tangent now and I don't really know that I've answered the question. <laughs> but those are just some things that I've been thinking about. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com shop, where you will find goods and services I've personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. I resonate with a lot of what you're saying and I and you know I've said before to you that I think we're we're similar in a lot of ways. We're not the sort of women who like to fawn and fake it, but at the same time I, I some of what you describe with the feminine is more like the toxic feminine or more like the right how how feminine is expressed in our culture currently. And I'm not convinced that that is actually feminine from my perspective mm. in terms of how how I want to hold the value of the virtue of the feminine the, and the virtue of the masculine. Like I think if I if I were to put it into one word for each when I think of what is what is the quintessential feminine virtue and the quintessential masculine virtue it would be respectively beauty and strength. Mm. And those two together are an amazing team. 
earlier I was talking about the need for beauty and the longing for beauty and and how I, I think that gets sort of perverted and distorted and hollowed out in a culture that fixates on rigid superficial exterior beauty without without the character of beauty behind it, without grace um, and the other sort of lovely feminine qualities, grace, equanimity, poise, um, sensitivity, nurturance, kindness, elegance, class, um, dignity. And um, but I, I also want to echo what you said about strength and violence and sort of the that one of the ultimate masculine virtues is to to hold to wield power properly mm -hmm. um and there's there's a jordan peterson quote about this i'm i'm trying to remember but it's something like and it actually maybe jordan peterson was quoting something else might have been biblical but it was something like those who have swords and know how to use them but keep them sheathed. And then exactly. there's more to that statement, but I can't remember the rest of it. I had a, a conversation with my stepson yesterday that was going through my head when you were talking about that um, because they the boys were squabbling over folding laundry as they do. You know, it's always any, any slight hint of unfairness. And of course they disagree over what's unfair because of course they each overestimate their own contribution and underestimate the other's <laughs> contributions. So they're always at it over who should fold what or, you know, you know, apply this to whatever situation, wash, rinse, repeat. But they were squabbling over laundry and they were getting mad and yelling at each other and storming off. And they're, you know, they're brothers. So they quickly shift back and forth more rapidly and subtly than any adult can keep track of between play and aggression. And it, it can be really hard to tell the difference between are they playing, are they having a good time or not. Um, but anyway, one of them went playfully but angrily for the Nerf gun. He went and got the Nerf gun and held it up and started shooting at his brother. And I took it away and I sat them down and I basically gave them a lecture about when you are angry, you do not go for the gun. You do not go for the gun when you're angry. That is not what guns are for. This gun is a symbol. It's a Nerf gun, but it's a symbol of something that has the power to kill for good or for bad, for food, for protection, or for evil. And when we give you this gift, it's a symbol that we are trusting you to hold that power appropriately and to pr practice holding power. You play with Nerf guns when? When everyone has agreed that that's what you're doing for fun. And no, you cannot take your brother laughing in response to this as a sign because we're also working on lessons about understanding how we laugh and smile for many different reasons. Sometimes we do mm. because we're having fun. Sometimes we do it because we're embarrassed or uncomfortable. So laughter is not always a signal that everyone's having a good time. Um, but so I gave him this whole talk about it. And he was like, well, then why do you give me a Nerf gun if I'm not allowed to use it? And I was like, because this is us showing you that we are testing you with the opportunity to demonstrate that you can wield this power appropriately under the conditions that everyone has agreed. And the moment you demonstrate that you are, that you think it's okay to pick up a weapon or raise your fist or whatever the symbolic action might be because you are angry, that is when you lose power because you're demonstrating that you can't hold it appropriately. Mm. So that was, it was very topical and timely for me when you started talking about that. Yeah, definitely. That's a good story. I mean, and I, I feel bad because I, I, you know, treated the feminine as sort of like all these 
negative things that I, I listed off, these things that I don't like that women stereotypically do. Um, but, you know, women do have this ability to empathize and I think to communicate in a more empathetic way than men do, whether that's socialized or, you know, connected to evolutionary biology or both. I think most most things are a, a mixture of both. Um, that's incredibly important, you know, to think about other people's feelings and (laughs) to empathize with how somebody else might be feeling in any given situation, which women are commonly do more than men. Again, stereotypically, not always. Well, that's why I think that grace is such a beautiful feminine virtue because, you know, it's, it's the women who carry themselves with grace that, don't fall into those sort of toxic femininity patterns that are Mm. promoted in the culture. And I feel really fortunate. You know, earlier I was talking about a place in time that I remember in my life where everything was beautiful and the whole way that the community lived was beautiful in many ways. Not perfect, but, um, and I feel really blessed that I had such a great circle of women around me at the time. And out of those women, there were a few that were really into makeup and designer clothes and things like that. And they also tended to be the more superficial and the more catty, the less trustworthy friends. But as a whole, we were not a superficial culture. And the way that we did things was full of full of feminine touch. There was there was so much thoughtfulness that went into making things beautiful. And, and enhancing the worlds of the senses and nurturing each other. But it was coming in a deep, a more deeply rooted sort of naturally feminine way. And that's what I wish we could get back to. And it's not to put anyone into a box, you know, don't, don't straw man me. People who are listening to this don't misrepresent or take what I'm saying out of context. It's not to impose my vision on anyone, but it is to say that I do believe that naturally dwelling within us are both masculine and feminine forces and the drive for beauty and the drive for strength. Earlier, I was saying too that I think beauty feeds my soul. And I think there is something about the way that beauty feeds a woman's soul and strength feeds a man's soul. Now, strength can feed a woman's soul and beauty can feed a man's soul as well. Um, but we also feed each other's souls, uh, you know, for those of us who are in opposite sex relationships by, by bringing those values. And, um, and I say this as a woman who's known for my strength to another woman who's known for her strength. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think it's great to have these sides well integrated and some people are going to naturally fall more into just being sort of more feminine or more masculine. And I think you and I are women who, although feminine, have these kind of strong masculine sides to us. Um, but I think you did a great job of answering Christo's question. And if there's anything left unsaid, that's that's quite all right because I realize we've taken up quite a bit of time as it is. Do you have any um, closing thoughts, anything left on your mind that you wanted to say? Oh, Lord. <laughs> I'm so tired. As I mentioned I earlier, I've been on a I've been traveling all day. I, I've been up since 5 30 a.m. and then oh, at wow. the airport for hours and then on a flight and then just well, got back. I just back appreciate home you all and... the more for showing up anyway. Oh yeah, I'm happy too. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm really glad that we had the opportunity to have another conversation. And uh yeah, I was I you know, one of the things that I I I realized about Mexico and Sayulito, which is where I live, is that the first time I went back to Vancouver after the after I had left during the pandemic was like 
six months later about. So I, I'd left in January and I went back to Vancouver in June um, to get some of my stuff. You know, I'd sort of abandoned everything there and I needed to to deal with things in, in Vancouver. And I was miserable. I left early. I planned to spend a month there and I only spent three weeks there. Two of those weeks I had to spend in quarantine. Um, and uh, I left early because I was so unhappy. And then as soon as I got back here, I instantly felt so relaxed and comfortable and so happy to be home. Like it felt like I was home there. And I was like, oh, okay. I guess I live here now. And that's how I feel whenever I come back here. And I noticed that while I once felt that way about Vancouver, like if I would leave, I'd come back and be happy to be home. Like for probably the whole year before COVID, I would leave and feel happy, mostly for work. You know, I'd travel to do an event or a talk or something like that. And I'd feel good. And then as soon as I would get off the plane and get into a cab or an Uber or whatever, I'd start feeling this like intense anxiety. Um, and that was a, a a good sign. Both of those things were good signs that, you know, I made the right decision. I can relate to that sense. And I'm, I'm sad at the state of the city that I live in and I'm pretty rooted here, you know, with family ties. And so I, yeah, I not everyone so easily, can pick up I, and leave. So I sort of feel bad saying some of this because everybody's no. like, Oh, I can't just like abandon my life. Yeah. But I mean, it's social justice culture that eats its own tail trying to say that you're not allowed to be happy if someone else is unhappy. You're not allowed to be privileged. I mean, no, I'm happy for you. And it's good to be reminded um, because I'm sort of in this in-between phase where because of my family commitments, I'm going to be here for at least another 10 years. But at the same time, I, I'm not in love with this place anymore. I don't know at mm. what point I fell out of love with it. I think it was a gradual process over the last several years. But this place is dark and heavy, and it's far from the sun at the 45th parallel under the clouds. And um, I, I've gone in and out of phases in my life of feeling like in love with a place, and I don't feel in love with a place right now. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's, it's affirming for me as much as I envy what you have. I don't spite you for having it. I'm glad you have it. And it's a reminder that the types of experiences I had when I lived in a place where my world felt beautiful, people still have those experiences in places. And I'm happy for you, Megan. And it's a good reminder that that still exists. And, and I'll be looking for that, even if it's just finding favorite vacation destinations for brief periods of time each year. For sure. Um, so for sure. I want to respect your time. Thank you so much for joining me. So um, to remind people where they can find you, where are all the places that they can find you? So I am back on Twitter, thanks to Elon Musk and Joe Rogan, <laughs> um, at Megan E. Murphy. I'm on Instagram at Megan Emily Murphy, and I'm on Substack at Megan Murphy, and um, YouTube. Uh, you can either search Megan Murphy or The Same Drugs, and the podcast The Same Drugs is everywhere you can listen to podcasts. And um, when our episode came out, I just have to say, you you were not putting full episodes on YouTube at the time because you were trying to direct people to Rumble, right? Oh, 
YouTube censored me, so I decided that I wanted to send people to Rumble instead. Um, and I also didn't want to get censored. And then, and also some of the stuff that we talked about was the kind of thing that YouTube censors over, censors over, and I didn't want to get permanently banned because now I have this strike for like talking about the vaccine, I suppose. I don't even know what I did wrong. Um, so I am trying to send people to Rumble more often. I'm still posting stuff on YouTube because I decided that it wouldn't help me to stop putting my stuff on YouTube. But I definitely have a very conflicted relationship with YouTube and I am not putting all my eggs in that basket. So yes, I'm also on Rumble. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good to know. Well, it's great to see you, Megan. Thanks okay, thank you so much. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at sometherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it. <laughs>